You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Metamorphosis. My name is Tina. And my name is Faison. Here on Metamorphosis Podcast, we are interviewing various physicians across BC with the aim of learning more about their specialties and helping us navigate our medical careers. We are here today with Dr. James Tassaro. Um, Dr. Tassaro was my preceptor for the clinical skills integration. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background, Dr. Tassaro, and a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today? I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me on. So I work as a general internal medicine physician at St. Paul's Hospital, uh, also at uh, Royal Columbian Hospital and up in Northwest Territories. And my pathway here, uh, like many pathways, uh, started with an interest in science and a desire to help people. And after an undergrad in biochemistry at the University of Victoria, I came to Vancouver and UBC campus and did everything else here. So core internal medicine, residency after medical school, and then general internal medicine fellowship. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you decided to pick internal medicine as a specialty? So I didn't know internal medicine was a specialty that existed when I got into medical school. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and I think I always pictured myself working in a hospital and uh, dealing with uh, sick patients who had a variety of illnesses. So I think I'd always imagined myself to be a generalist, although I didn't know it in that terms at that time. So in third year, in clerkship, I was the uh, A1 rotation, which means I do internal medicine first. And so I went to Vancouver General Hospital and spent eight weeks doing internal medicine as part of my uh, clerkship rotation. And by doing that, I saw and worked with physicians that I admired and was, uh, I think, enamored by their ability to manage uh, uh, large and small problems and a whole bunch of different problems. And I think it was the kind of work that I always envisioned myself doing as far as working in a hospital, working with acutely ill patients, um, and being able to, to hopefully capture the whole patient and manage all of their care. And so that was when I discovered what internal medicine was and started to uh, fall in love with that specialty. As I went through the rest of my third year clerkship, I did other rotations that I also really enjoyed. I really enjoyed emergency medicine, although I found myself drifting towards the more um, acutely complex patient rather than, say, the more simple sort of cast clinic or um, minor treatment area areas. So I wanted to spend more time in the critical care areas on acute side. Um, even doing surgical rotations, I certainly enjoyed those things uh, as I did them and um, even thought for a while that I wanted to be a surgeon, perhaps a general surgeon, being a generalist at heart, uh, but later decided that I wanted to be able to show up with my brain and my stethoscope and be able to do my job and have relatively little other need for other infrastructure around me. Um, and while I admire and respect our surgeons, I think there's a lot of uh, things that they have to have in order to do their job well. Uh, whereas as an internist, I feel like I can show up with very limited um, supplies, as I said, a brain and a stethoscope and do my job. So that was part of my pathway to internal medicine. Could you tell us um, what qualities or traits about yourself make you suited to internal and maybe some of the things specifically that you admired in other people in that field. I think something I admired about my preceptors in internal medicine was their ability to sort of keep all the balls in the air. So patients with multifaceted comorbidities, which were all interacting to some degree, they were able to manage those concurrently and in the context of each other 
uh, and I found that that as a cognitive exercise that was complex, certainly not within what I thought my skill set was, uh, and something I wanted to be able to do and get good at. Do yeah. you think that's something people are born with, or something that can be crafted and developed over time? I think it can be learned. I think it's the sort of thing that certainly there's people who have tendencies towards that. Um, you asked about other qualities, and I'll add in, I think being detail-oriented helps in internal medicine because there's a lot of small details, and I think you can even further optimize your patient's care by attending to those details. And I think that can be learned as well. I think there are people who naturally have a predisposition to wanting to manage those things and being able to keep all the balls in the air, but uh, I think it can be learned. Is there anything that you had wished you had known while you were navigating this kind of decision to internal medicine? Looking back, I think the way our system's set up right now, it's very mysterious as to what jobs are available at the end of any kind of training. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get a straight answer out of anybody. And there's not really actually a good, say, list or repository where this information lies. And so it's uh, very much about word of mouth and opinions from people as to how you find a job in the end. So I... I'm not sure this was something I needed to know ahead of time, but it would have been nice to have a clearer path of what it meant to be an internist and how my life would look at the end of all of it. I think when I started uh, applying for internal medicine residency, I thought I knew I wanted to work in the hospital. I wanted to deal with sick and complex patients, and it kind of gone as far as that. I hadn't quite pictured actually what my life would look at the end of all of it uh, and having a job. Having that information up front certainly would be nice and helpful. So do you have any advice for people in our position, we're still medical students, perhaps interested in internal medicine, but also hearing kind of the gossip about finding a job in Vancouver? Do you have any advice on people kind of undecided but interested? I think the advice I would give is do whatever you're passionate about. And if it happens to be internal medicine, you should go and do that. If it happens to be neurosurgery, you should go and do that. And I think actually really follow what's going to make you intrinsically happy so that you can show up to work every day once you're finished this long path of training and enjoy your work and feel satisfied that you're making a positive contribution. And so you feel like you've found that in internal medicine? I do. Um, and I think the things that, that keep me excited about my job every day, it's certainly the, the patient variations that I see are endless. No one patient is like the next and so I'm perpetually still learning on the job. And in addition to that, working in a hospital is a very dynamic place. And so I work with many other people who, who help me care for these patients. And so it's a highly interactive and collaborative type of work that I do. And I find that very satisfying. Yeah, it sounds like there's quite a variety of things that a general internist does. Um, could you describe what a, a regular kind of day looks like? That's a hard question because a day looks very different depending on how I have mm -hmm. my days set up. Uh, so many internists have both inpatient and outpatient practices. A day in an outpatient office could look like uh, doing consultations and follow-ups in your office uh, for a usual workday, 9 to 5, something like that. Uh, and that could either be in your own private office or in a, in a hospital-based office. Uh, inpatient medicine is, is a whole different ballgame, and it really depends on where you're working as to what your life looks like. So most people doing medical school will be familiar with uh, CTU, the clinical teaching unit, and uh, that's how I spend a fair bit of my time. And I would say this is the strange cousin of internal medicine that only really exists in larger centers uh, compared to, say, doing general internal medicine in the community. 
So uh, when I'm doing CTU, uh, my daytime looks like starting early and arriving at 7.30 a.m. and working uh, with my senior residents, junior residents, and medical students. Uh, We'll go and see patients together after we review new consultations, round on them on the ward. Uh, There's usually built-in teaching or rounds throughout the day and then wrapping up a day uh, later on in the evening uh, and then doing call on top of that as well. So typically one in four or one in five call when on service. And then you can contrast those sort of two discrete types of practice, say, in the city with, say, a community general internist. Uh, And I don't claim to be a community general internist, but from chatting with uh, colleagues of mine who are um, and from going through training and working with them, a typical day might be highly variable in the sense you may start your day by rounding on your inpatients, say, in a a small critical care unit, uh, maybe doing some consultations to the emergency department going back to your own clinic and doing a half day of clinic and perhaps reading uh, stress tests or Holters or ECGs for part of your day as well, where you have all components of both inpatient and outpatient practice mixed together in a single day. Do you find you're doing any procedures in your work as an internist? Um, As a general internist, uh, we do a variety of procedures, but it's not our day in and day out. Uh, I would say it's much more of a cognitive specialty. So procedures that we do do regularly. Uh, I can think back this past week. So I did a lumbar puncture, uh, a paracentesis and a thoracentesis. Uh, and these are generally all, um, uh, of course, don't retire any general anesthetic and are done at the bedside. Could you talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be an internist in Vancouver at Royal Columbian or St. Paul's where you work, but also compare that to your work up north and what that looks like? Uh, I think this is one of the things I really enjoy about my practice because they are they're very similar in many ways and very different in other ways. Some of the similarities that I see are that uh, the patients I encounter often have the same problems, both in community centers uh, up north and in urban centers. People still have heart failure and kidney disease and bowel issues and respiratory problems. And those things are remarkably similar from place to place. Certainly working up north, uh, you see the discrepancy in resources. And so when I'm in Yellowknife, I'm the only internist that's there on call at that time. And we generally don't have any other subspecialists there. Occasionally there will be folks, uh, say a gastroenterologist who's in town or uh, say a rheumatologist who's in town. But other than that, uh, I get first crack at all of these really truly general internal medicine cases. I'm on the phone all the time speaking with colleagues down in the city to pick their brains for subspecialty advice. And I contrast that to, say, my work at St. Paul's, where as a tertiary care center, really almost at my fingertips, I have access to almost any specialty or subspecialty that I'd like. And so I can really um, learn a lot by consulting other specialties and then apply that also to my work up north. So it sounds like internal medicine is a really rich ground for you to continue your learning. Absolutely. I think, as I mentioned earlier, I I literally learn new things every day. And that's really what I enjoy about working in a large academic center as well, is because I'm always having other trainees uh, rotate through. They've learned things from doing rotations with various subspecialists um, that then add to my body of knowledge. Right. So I saw in your UBC profile that teaching is one of your passions, and I really could tell that that's true from my time with you at St. Paul's, or sorry, at Royal Columbian. Um, what would you say that you, what's the one thing you want to impart on your students? Out of the many, many students you've had, what's one key takeaway you'd like to leave with them? I think we learn a lot of things in medicine. And as you go through the process of medical school and residency, 
I think we sometimes lose sight of the, the human, the patient who's behind the various disorders that they have. And I think that from personal experience as well, you start to fill your brain with all kinds of knowledge and you learn how to uh, manage a patient and you understand physiology and uh, medications and diagnostic tests. And your brain becomes crowded with your own agenda as to what you're trying to do for your patients. I think we need to make sure we always step back and see what the patient wants and what their actual problem is. Uh, And by connecting with them on that level, you can actually help them achieve what their health goals are rather than getting lost in all of the other bits of medicine that you have to do. So one of my uh, preceptors when I was a trainee uh, would reiterate to me that if you ask the patient what's going on, they will tell you what the problem is. And so we must not forget that the patient is at the core of what we're doing here. I think that's completely in line with what I saw from you when uh, we were doing our CSI rotation with you. Um, something that really stood out to me that I hadn't seen in too many other uh, preceptors that I've had so far was that you really talked to the patient. So even though it was the teaching rotation and you had your students there, you explained things to us, kind of probed our clinical reasoning, but you always brought, brought it right back to the patient and you asked them what they understood and what they wanted to know and you really spoke directly to them. And I thought that was a very valuable thing to be able to see. So that will lead me to my next question, which is, what do you want your patients to remember about you? Oh, I, I don't want my patients to remember anything about me. <laughs> I think I want my patients to be able to focus on their own lives. And, and, and nobody plans on being sick. Nobody wants a medical disorder. Nobody really wants to see a doctor or an internist. So my hope is that my patients are able to get on and live their lives as best as possible, despite having encountered me or the medical system. A good answer. <laughs> so it sounds like medical education is really important to you. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the research that you're doing in medical education? Yes. Yeah, so uh, my pathway to medical education, actually, maybe if I can start there, uh, actually came from uh, having excellent preceptors of my own and seeing some of the qualities that they were able to impart both on their patients as far as how do they educate them about their own diseases, but also uh, to the trainees where they had a very positive impact. And so uh, I became passionate in those areas and started to dabble in a variety of other uh, research projects, Medicaid, medical education associated. So one of the projects that we have on the go at the moment is actual, actually about contextual competence. As the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, moves to a competence by design type of framework, that is, uh, we have to determine if somebody's competent before we can release them on the public to practice uh, autonomously. Well, I think it's important that we remember that uh, your ability to do something competently really also matters. It matters where you are and who is around you to do that. And so I think it's very interesting if you think of your own, uh, especially as you get into third year, as you do clerkship and rotate from site to site and hospital to hospital, you'll discover even with the small tasters you've had already, say coming into Royal Columbian Hospital, right? there's all kinds of people around you and ways of doing things and while you can have the knowledge of, say, how to treat heart failure, that's a relatively, there's some core principles there that really should be, doesn't really matter where you are, you should be following those to actually get the patient the care that they need. It depends on what context that you're in. And so your ability to actually competently manage a patient, it depends on where you are. So in third year, you get to rotate from hospital to hospital, maybe in Vancouver or outside Vancouver. In residency, certainly if you come and do internal medicine, 
you'll rotate from subspecialty to subspecialty, and you'll go uh, all around the province. And then if you come and do general internal medicine fellowship, we really work hard to actually keep you out of Vancouver uh, to give you a taster of what the community looks like. And you'll discover that it's sometimes very hard or very easy to get things done that you need done for your patient based on the context that you're in. And so being able to actually demonstrate competent practice really matters on who's around you and how well you can interact with your environment. So there's this concept of contextual competence. So we have a research project on the go right now, actually, across Canada, looking at uh, mostly internal medicine residents in their later years, and how do they recreate competent practice as they go from location to location, and how does the context affect how they're able to practice. So that's one of the projects we have going on uh, for medical education. One of the other projects that we're working on is also about the transition to practice. That is, as you finish residency and fellowship, how do you smoothly uh, become, well, an attending, a staff physician? And I purposely used the word practicing autonomously before because I think sometimes people use the word independently. And what we've discovered from our research so far is that people aren't practicing independently. You're not by yourself being the distributor of medical care, but rather you're actually working collaboratively with many other people, including your patient. You're working interdependently uh, with other people in order to actually provide the best care possible for your patient. And I think sometimes people have this stress towards end of residency or fellowship that they should be this pillar of knowledge and purveyor of medicine. Uh, They have to do it all by themselves. And everybody should be reassured that that's not the case. You have many other people around you to help you care for your patients. And so uh, exploring the transition to practice and how we actually smooth that transition to alleviate anxiety and help people transition successfully is another project we have on the go. It sounds like you're continuously learning through internal medicine, as you mentioned before. Is there anything that surprised you about your your work? I think the thing that surprised me the most uh, was how gray the world of medicine is and not black and white. I think I had this a naive idea in medical school that we know most of what there is to know about medicine and the body and how things work. And I just needed to learn it all. I just needed to put it all in my brain. And I just needed to fill up my brain. And then I would have that knowledge and could do it. Uh, what I've come to learn quite clearly is that it's not nearly all black and white. And there's still so much that not only I don't know about medicine, but perhaps as a world, we don't know about medicine. And so... I'm always learning new things from my colleagues who have more advanced knowledge than I do. And also learning that some things that we think are a very finite, well-described disease, maybe it's not quite as clear-cut as we thought it was. And the way that, uh, say, the phenotype presents in one patient may be very different than another patient. So I think that's what surprised me the most, was learning how how gray the world is uh, and not black and white. Mm-hmm. I want to take us back a little bit to the last uh, topic of conversation. Your thesis is on that transition from residency to autonomously practicing. So that's obviously something you care about and see a need for. What are some of the things that residents or senior residents are having a difficult time with in that transition? Uh, That's a good question. So it kind of depends on who you are and what you're doing. If you look to the literature in this area, There's some generalizable things that residents are struggling with, and then there's some very specialty-specific things. So if you look at all residents, in general, people struggle with uh, the increased responsibility associated with transitioning practice. Even as a resident, as you transition, say, from... Oh, if we back up even further, transition from being a second-year medical student to be a third-year medical student, the anxiety of increased responsibility is, is, is real and present. 
And hopefully people are well supported so that can be managed and you can continue to learn in a more of an apprenticeship type model as a third year. Most people really enjoy it as well. That degree of responsibility increases again as you move into residency. And that degree of uh, responsibility again changes as you transition to staff where there's nobody uh, sort of in quotations looking over your shoulder, whatever level of of, um, supervision you have at that time. Uh, But people feel the weight of that. And so that's certainly something that everybody tends to struggle with if you look at the literature. There's other more concrete things. So people struggle with, say, uh, finding a job. Uh, I think things are opaque uh, in many jurisdictions in the world, not just British Columbia, as far as what jobs are available and how do you find one. People are generally uh, underprepared for, say, the, the practicalities of running an office, be it a private office or a hospital-based office, and the, the managerial skills there. In contrast to that, one of the most reassuring things is that in general, people are really ready to practice the medicine or the surgery that they're practicing. They're good at diagnosing disease, providing management plans, and counseling patients. So I think we're doing an excellent job of that. Does that answer your question? Can you bring me back to that again? Yeah, so that I was just asking about some of the struggles that residents were having as they transitioned to practicing autonomously. Right. And I guess the next part of to that question would be, what are we doing about that? Great to question. To fill in those gaps. So um, if we look at what people are struggling with in BC, and specifically general internists, it really depends on where you're practicing as to where your gaps are. So if you're going to community, most of the community internists said, I really needed more critical care uh, because they're the ones who are running the ICU. Whereas, say, as, a, as myself, as a general internist, say, in the city at St. Paul's, I don't run the ICU. Uh, we have intensivists who do that. So I didn't really need more critical care for that aspect of my job. Uh, other pieces are a bit lacking as well, say um, some training in cardiology, whereas community internists spend a lot of time doing cardiology because they don't have cardiologists there as well. So they need more training in those areas. So what are we doing about it? That's a great question. Um, one of the other particular gaps is also managing outpatient settings and outpatient practice because in internal medicine, we spend a lot of time doing inpatient work and managing acute medical issues. And I think our trainees are very adept at doing those things, but not as much about how to arrange the right timing of follow-up and how quickly you need to get tests done. And so uh, the way that that's changed is actually very positive in the last couple of years, uh, introducing more longitudinal clinics into our general internal medicine fellowship. Um, we've revised our boot camp within the General Internal Medicine Fellowship to include more uh, cardiology training and graphics up front. Uh, and then as far as critical care areas, well, we need to actually explore with our general interest um, fellows where they actually want to practice so we can actually map out a, a fellowship training plan that works for their career goals. Okay. It's a tall order. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about was um, physician burnout. I, I'm thinking about that transition from from residency to being a an autonomous physician, and that's something that we keep hearing in the media. Um, I was wondering how you mitigate that kind of stress level yourself and how you're able to kind of balance your work and your life. Uh, I think that's a very timely topic. I think the at least the word burnout has reached everybody's vocabulary uh, in medicine, certainly sometime in the last 10 years or so. And I think it was probably always going on, but maybe those terms weren't used. When I think about myself personally, I think the key to keeping work fresh and enjoyable is to balance that with a non-work component as well. Uh, The group that I'm with, uh, we work hard to uh, make sure that we're not actually working too many weeks in a row. Uh, And our division head is very good at uh, 
helping coach us around that. And so I spend time with my family, with my wife and my kids. And I think that's the, the key driver for me of trying to keep a balanced life and, and not burning out so I can go back to work fresh. And I would add to that, as I said, I work in many different jurisdictions and that keeps things fresh for me as well. Uh, everything's a little bit different each place that I go. And so I'm always sort of excited to return back to the previous place. You've mentioned a lot of benefits or exciting things about being an internal medicine doctor, um, one of which being, you know, ample opportunity for growth and learning, as well as a lot of variability in what you do, not just in the patient demographic, but the type of cases you're seeing and the resources available to you. Could you speak to us a little bit about the challenges of being an internal medicine doctor? And what are some of the things that you could do with less of in your work? Oh, that's a hard question. I think one of the things that I struggle with is many of my patients, especially at St. Paul's Hospital, given the, the demographic that they serve, being the downtown east side population, which has a lot of people who struggle with uh, mental health and uh, polysubstance use, and have medical problems in addition to those things or as a consequence of those things, is sometimes as an internist, I feel like I'm shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. And while I can certainly mop up somebody's presentation with, say, sepsis or infective endocarditis, I feel a little bit powerless to actually change their lives in a positive way. And it's disheartening to anticipate that I know many of my patients are going to be back again in the hospital system because we don't actually have the fundamental root causes fixed for some of these folks. And this really comes back to the social determinants of health, which are, are quite obvious and prevalent. Uh, in the, the folks that I see at St. Paul's. And and as a physician, um, I certainly think we need to advocate uh, for our patients in, in providing those necessities such as housing uh, and stable um, other components of their lives. Uh, but it's not really the way my role works when I'm working as, uh, say, a general internist at St. Paul's managing the internal medicine ward. So I think that's something that... that um, I struggle with and I find frustrating because I know it's difficult for me as a single provider to, to change the, the longer term outcome for many of my patients. How do you stay motivated in the long term? I think sometimes uh, you do see these occasional positive changes uh, where people really can actually have their life stabilized in a variety of ways and you can have some successful discharges and patients who are able to, to have parts of their lives uh, achieve some stability. Um, and so I think you that provides some encouragement. I think I see some of my colleagues as uh, inspiring as well, who've been doing this a lot longer than I have, and have seen transitions in patient populations over the last decades as well. And so I, I highly respect them as they continue to, to battle through uh, helping these populations uh, with their health needs. So I think I find them inspiring. So I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Casson in clinic one day when we encountered a patient who'd been referred to us after seeing a number of other subspecialists. She had had some, some sort of upper chest symptoms. And she'd been referred to a cardiologist because her chest symptoms at one point had been interpreted as chest pain. Uh, she'd had an ECG done and a exercise stress test done. Uh, both of these were normal. And 
uh, her cardiologist suggested that she, uh, that it wasn't likely that she was experiencing ischemic heart disease as the root cause of her symptoms. Um, and so she was then referred on to actually a gastroenterologist, wondering if her, her chest symptoms maybe were, say, reflux-related and whether she needed an upper endoscopy. Perhaps she had uh, unrelenting uh, GERD. She was put on a PPI for three months. Her symptoms persisted. She had an upper endoscopy. It was normal. Uh, the root cause of her symptoms wasn't clear at this point. She saw a number of other uh, specialists as well without any clear cause for her, her chest symptoms. And I remember actually as a fellow trying to take her history, and she'd seen so many different people and seen many specialists, and I really got bogged down in all of her, her records that she had before. And the, the epiphany for me was when I reported the case to Dr. Casson and uh, reviewed her situation, went through in the usual manner. Here's her history, and here's what I found on physical exam, and here's what we know from previous investigations, and here's my assessment and plan. This is what I think is going on and what we should do next. And the part that I missed and the part that Dr. Casson showed me was actually how to go and listen to the patient and actually listen to her really about what her problem was. And when Dr. Casson spoke with the patient uh, and asked her to tell her story, she really described a very uh, different chest symptom that doesn't get nicely categorized into any sort of uh, preconceived idea of what chest symptoms might be. She had a pulsation in her upper thorax and neck that corresponded with her carotid pulse exactly. And in the end, after another ultrasound, which demonstrated a bit of excess tissue in that area, after all of this testing had been done, if we had listened to the patient about her original symptom, we probably could have concluded, well, she actually just has an exaggerated experience of a normal carotid pulse, rather than looking for ischemic chest pain or reflux, which really weren't present if you actually asked her about her root symptomatology. And so I think that's something I learned from, from one of my mentors and somebody I look up to, is actually how to go back and actually listen to the patient, and they will tell you what the diagnosis is. And so taking that few extra seconds or minutes to listen to your patient, A, would have saved them so much anxiety about what they could be experiencing, but your time, the hospital's time, investigations, and all the related costs. I think so. I think we sometimes try to put patients in boxes that we understand uh, and have a clear pathway to go forward rather than actually listening to them directly. I think it definitely shows in the way that you practice or the way that I've seen you know, from the two sessions we've had. You really do take the time to listen to your patients. You're doing a really fantastic job at that. Um, and I think that's something we really need to remember as we move forward mm -hmm. and kind of develop how we would like our practices to be and how we practice medicine. That's something I will remember at least. I think as doctors in general, we have a kind of perfectionist attitude and mindset to a lot of the things we do. And so maybe not doing things perfectly the first time can be something really difficult to struggle with. We haven't been on the wards yet, so we don't mm. know. But I anticipate that's a challenge that at least in third year, a lot of us are going to go through. Mm -hmm. How did you handle that? I think we do have this culture of perfectionism, as you touched on. And uh, it's difficult to admit mistakes because nobody, nobody wants to make mistakes. Nobody tries to make mistakes. Um, but we all do because we're all human. And so, yes, uh, that's certainly something that I've struggled with as well. Is there anything that some people think about your specialty that's not true, like a myth, perhaps, that you can debunk about internal medicine? Oh, that's a, 
a good question. I think there's a lot of myths about internal medicine. <laughs> um, it's not like house. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's exactly like house. <laughs> well, what are the myths you guys have heard about internal medicine? Or what, what are the things that you've heard about internal medicine? And I can either confirm or refute those from my experience. I've heard it's a little bit like CBL and that you're kind of in a room together eating sponsored lunches every day. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say it's, it's like CBL in the sense that you really are problem solving your patient's problems and you have to draw on lots of resources for that. Uh, I'm not sure about the sponsored part of the lunches. Occasionally those do happen. Uh, but it very much is a, uh, at least doing CTU style internal medicine is very much a team atmosphere of problem solving. So I can confirm that part. How much is it independent work or autonomous work? And how much is it that you're really relying on the expertise of your coworkers? Um, or them on yours? I think, I think when you're, uh, if you're thinking about, say, yourself as a third year clerk, um, it's very collaborative. So I think we try to do our best to empower our third-year students to really actually take the patient as their own and to drive their care forward and to try to make it feel like you are their doctor. Uh, and you are. You are their practitioner, uh, but hopefully in a supportive manner so that our, both our senior residents and, and attending physicians are also looking out for both the learner and the patient. Uh, so in that sense, you really do have the opportunity to, to drive your patient's care forward uh, in a safe and supervised manner. Was that what you were getting at? I meant more like, is it you handle less complicated cases and for the more complex ones, you do kind of a team consultation? Is it like that or? So it's a mix of both. And I think that's a good point. Um, for example, I have a patient who I just recently discharged. That was very satisfying. And she's a healthy 34-year-old woman uh, who had actually been seen by a number of subspecialists as an outpatient. She'd been perfectly well up until recently, uh, when she began to develop a rash to the uh, distal aspects of all of her digits, fingers and toes. She began to experience profound fatigue. Then she had very significant mouth ulceration in a variety of areas, so painful, in fact, that she started to lose weight because she wasn't able to eat or drink properly. Uh, she'd also noticed a bit of uh, shortness of breath. So she was actually referred as an outpatient to one of my uh, general internal medicine colleagues who did an excellent job in trying to sort out what the root cause of this multi-system appearing disease was, uh, thinking that probably there was something infectious or inflammatory or potentially malignant going on here in the background. Uh, he referred her on to uh, another uh, subspecialist to an infectious disease doctor to have further assessment done as well. Uh, she continued to be more fatigued, having weight loss, a bit of diarrhea, um, and uh, nausea as well. So now we have involvement of uh, the skin, the chest, the abdomen. abdomen. Uh, we have um, oral lesions and uh, generalized symptoms. Uh, and then uh, she also, it was noticed that her blood count started to fall. Uh, so she developed a new thrombocytopenia as well as uh, reduction in her white count uh, diffusely as well as slowly uh, falling down hemoglobin. And so at this point, her family doctor noticed all of this and thought, we better just send her to the hospital to get uh, some more uh, folks involved to sort her out because whatever is going on here is continuing to accelerate and we don't have an answer yet, let alone need treatment for this. So upon presentation to the hospital, all of these things were noted. And in fact, it was also noted that she had uh, uh, hemoglobin in her urine, which was an unexpected finding as well. 
So now we have potential involvement of multiple different organs. So given this all sound a bit rheumatological, we got the rheumatology service involved. Given the possibility it could have been infectious, we had the infectious disease team see her as well. Due to the pancytopenia, we had hematology see her. She also had a CT of her chest showing non-specific ground glass in a variety of areas, and we wondered whether bronchoscopy was necessary, so we had respirology see her. She had red cells in her urine on multiple urinalyses, though no casts and a normal creatinine. We had the hematology, or sorry, the nephrology seer as well. So at this point now, I think we had, I can't remember how many I was just listed there, but five different subspecialties seeing this lady in addition to ourselves as general internal medicine. So we really entered a phase of now team decision-making as far as what's going on. The conclusion of the case was it looks like she has a new diagnosis of lupus affecting multiple different systems. And interestingly, she had concomitant bacteremia with a very um, rare bug called Morganella non-leucophagians. And so we really needed a team approach. In order to appropriately plan her immunosuppression, well, we actually needed to know, did she have lupus nephritis? And so she did undergo a renal biopsy. Uh, And then together, the rheumatology and nephrology service uh, came up with a management plan for ongoing immunosuppression. And that was also in conjunction with uh, hematology. And we decided not to bone marrow biopsy. And actually, her bone marrow um, indices improved dramatically after starting uh, low-dose prednisone in hospital. Uh, Interestingly, uh, dermatology saw her as well. They decided not to biopsy her skin rash. It was clearly vasculitic uh, and associated with her lupus. That also resolved with immunosuppression. And the very difficult decision-making was, how do we immunosuppress this lady in an appropriate manner, given she's also currently bacteremic with some degree of sepsis? And so that really required expert opinions from multiple services. So there's an example where uh, we certainly uh, entered in a phase of very significant group decision-making. On the other hand, sometimes as general internists, we're quite happy to to manage multiple different competing, say, organ systems uh, on our own. And a classic example would be somebody who presents, say, with acute dyspnea, which may be, say, related to COPD or pneumonia or heart failure, in the context of acute kidney injury as well, and will often manage concomitant renal disease and cardiac disease together, and can do that um, uh, without the need for other subspecialty involvement. So what was the proportion between those two things? Kind of your bread and butter, congestive heart failure, COPD, MI, versus the zebras? Uh, Good question. Um, If you hear hooves, it's probably horses. So the zebras do come along from time to time. And I think in internal medicine, maybe one of the myths, if we come back to that, is that we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about zebras, which is probably true, because you don't want to miss them when they come along. But an atypical presentation of a common disease is always more common than a typical presentation of an uncommon disease. And so I think that's something that uh, we can probably do a better job of internal medicine is just going for uh, the most likely diagnosis rather than always thinking about the zebras. Uh, As far as how much time we spend dabbling in those various aspects, it really depends on where you are. So certainly when I'm at uh, a tertiary care center, I see more unusual presentations and I see more uh, rare diseases. Uh, when I'm working in community, I see a lot more bread and butter. And then when you are working in a team, is everyone together seeing the patient and making these decisions? Or is it one team seeing her after another? And are there gaps in communication? Do things fall through the crack if it is like the second way I mentioned? Certainly when you have different specialties involved in caring for a patient, uh, sometimes you can feel like ships passing in the night. 
And so communication is of the utmost importance, as, you, as you've touched on. So generally, uh, no, it's not like I will see the patient with, say, the rheumatology team and the nephrology team in the same room at the same time. That would be very rare to happen, but does happen occasionally and is sometimes necessary. Uh, more often, as a general internist, uh, uh, we'll have an opportunity to quarterback the patient's care and then reach out to all these various specialties. The trickier part is reaching out in which sequence. And sometimes you do need to get everybody on the phone together in the same room together to actually have a conversation and do shared decision-making. Uh, but more often, people will see the patient sequentially, have their own opinions, and then as, as the main care provider, the MRP, you need to pull it all together for the patient. Sounds challenging. <laughs> <laughs> it can be. To be able to juggle. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts in internal medicine. There's a lot of, you mentioned collaboration, a lot of continuous learning. Um, I'm interested to know more about where you think the, the future of internal medicine is going. How do you see the specialty evolving? Good question. Uh, internal medicine has been around for a long time. Um, general internal medicine uh, is is now a Royal College recognized subspecialty of internal medicine, for good or for bad. That's how it is now. I think we certainly have a population which is living longer and developing more complex and core morbid diseases. And I'd suggest that internists are in an excellent position to help care for these patients, uh, both as inpatients and as outpatients. I think because... Uh, we have some expertise in a variety of different organ-based diseases. Uh, I think we're in an excellent position to be able to care for many of these patients. So one thing that's already happening is in community, at least here in Vancouver and a part of the Lower Mainland, is these uh, collaborative community uh, care facilities, uh, primarily run by family physicians, but with uh, assistance from various other disciplines, say social work and physiotherapy. And they're going to have general internal medicine um, specialists come in and do clinic there as well so that they can then collaborate on these patients in the outpatient setting as well rather than having to send up, say, a patient off uh, to another clinic. Uh, trying to make it much more low barrier, especially for patients that have difficulty in uh, doing follow-up appointments. So I think as our population ages and people are living longer and actually, well, acquiring more disorders as they go on and interacting um, diseases, I think internal medicine is primed uh, to continue to care for these patients. Where do you see the greatest need in our province right now? If you, if I could give you a trillion dollars right now for healthcare, where would you put that? <laughs> um, I think the part that, that I see day in and day out is what I already alluded to with uh, the population we serve at St. Paul's Hospital. Um, and as I mentioned, a lack of stable housing, a lack of uh, mental health um, access, as well as uh, support for polysubstance use and the ongoing uh, opioid crisis. I think those are the, the part that I see flashing us uh, with headlights right now as the key issue. Uh, and so I would focus money in those areas. Yeah, it sounds like those are major issues. How can we as medical students or as future medical practitioners or even as practitioners advocate for our patients and get involved with issues like housing and mental health? So I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out for myself as well. I think ongoing advocacy at the provincial government level uh, to acquire more funding to, for all of these various uh, determinants of health would be helpful. I think that's a really important point. What we've been kind of learning more this year has there's been a huge focus on the social determinants of health and that it's actually a larger factor in terms of somebody's health and their outcomes than even genetics or the environment that they're in. The money and, and their access to care is such a huge thing. So I know as doctors, you know, you do your education, do your residency, you're taking care of the patient in the way that you know how, but what more can we be doing? 
I don't, I don't think I have the specific answer. I think it depends on where your particular interests lie. And if that's, if that's your passion, I encourage you full force to go after that. Uh, I think we could probably point to lots of different sort of advocacy bodies that you could get involved with. Uh, you may know those better than I. Um, but I think maybe that's the starting point, as you said, is just recognizing that that is a critical uh, piece of a patient's overall health and well-being uh, are those social determinants. And so that's, I think, the starting point, as you've already experienced um, and you'll continue to experience. So just shifting gears now, um, what does life look like outside of medicine for you? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. As I mentioned, um, I've been married for 12 years to my fabulous wife, Carolyn, and I have two kids, uh, Audrey, age eight, and Philippa, age six. And so life outside of medicine is family life. And uh, I think it's normal things, trying to have breakfast on Saturday mornings and taking my kids to soccer games and soccer practice and um, going on vacations with my family and uh, skiing whenever we can and uh, spending time doing whatever my kids are into. Do you find that internal medicine gives you the opportunity to kind of have that balance? I think it does. And I think that's one of the the luxuries of working with uh, quite a large call group is that my schedule is relatively flexible mm-hmm. as far as being able to get time off when I need it. Or when I need to take a time off, I have excellent colleagues who are always willing to cover me or trade for me. Um, and so that's, yes, I think that is possible in internal medicine. As long as you remind yourself to take the time off and not burn out by doing too much work. Is that something you've seen in the past with other people around you? I think it's very common. I think all of us, as we, um, I've only been in practice for four years now, as we exit our fellowship training, everybody's ready to hit the ground running and generally signs up for way too much work. Um, And they do a great job. And then people come to the conclusion on their own, uh, usually after after having been given the advice that they're probably working too much as well, that they need to peel that back a little bit as well. So as we're coming to the end of our podcast now, you've given us a lot of valuable insight and advice as we move on to third year. Um, Could you just end this uh, interview with something that you're really proud of? I I think I'm most proud of probably a non-medical thing that that when I look at my overall life over these last uh, many years of training uh, is the most critical part to at least my personal reasons as to why I am where I am now. So I think I'm most proud of um, uh, being happily married to my wife for 12 years. And and despite all the ups and downs of training and moving all around the province at various times and the stress of getting to this point um, to still have that relationship intact and as better than ever. Although it's probably not my point of pride Uh, I attribute all the success to my wife. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it, and uh, we wish you all the best in the future of your practice. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me, and I wish you all the best in your future practice. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 